Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Good evening, everyone. Okay, buckle up. Because there is a lot going on this hour. The Senate will be voting shortly on voting rights legislation. President Biden finished up a nearly two-hour press conference in the past hour. We'll have a lot more on what was a very, very newsy event. Plus, there's breaking news tonight with major implications for the former president. The Supreme Court has rejected Trump's effort to block his administration's records from being sent to the January 6th committee. We'll have much more on that coming up. But we begin tonight with the United States Senate one step closer to putting themselves on the historical record on voting rights versus embracing the current phone-in version of the filibuster. Any minute now, the Senate is expected to begin a series of votes on voter protection legislation, which is expected to fail, teeing up Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's plan to move forward with a vote on a proposed filibuster rule change. That, too, is likely to fail, since conservative Democratic senator and professional coal baron Joe Manchin, in the tradition of the Bonnie to his Clyde, Kirsten Cinema, preempted that effort earlier this afternoon, reiterating his support for the 60-vote threshold with no requirement to even do it in person. The United States Senate has never in 233 years been able to end debate on legislation with a simple majority vote. Allowing one party to exert complete control in the Senate with only a simple majority will only pour fuel on a fire political whiplash. Eliminating the filibuster would be the easy way out. It wasn't meant to be easy. I cannot support such a perilous course for this nation when elected leaders are sent to Washington to unite our country, not to divide our country. At literally the same time that Manchin was slamming the door in his face, President Biden was at his press conference marking his first year in office and said that he is not willing to accept defeat. I think that uh, there are a number of things we can do, but I also think we will be able to get significant pieces of the legislation if we don't get it all now to build to get it so that we get a, a big chunk of the John Lewis legislation as well as the fair election. During today's debate, uh, Minority Leader Addison Mitchell McConnell, who nuked the filibuster himself to steal three Supreme Court seats for the far right, two of whom Joe Manchin had no problem at all voting for without 60 votes, mind you, tried to scaremonger by saying Democrats are trying to silence millions of Americans by breaking the Senate. Instead, they've been consumed by a fake panic over election laws that seems to exist only in their own imaginations. This party line push has never been about securing citizens' rights. It's about expanding politicians' power. That's why their bill tries to weaken voter ID laws that are popular with Americans of all races. To be clear, the party Mitch McConnell is actually referring to is the Republican Party. But far be it for the man who has done more than anyone to destroy the institution to acknowledge what Colorado Democratic Senator Michael Bennett eloquently called out as the destruction the self-proclaimed Grim Reaper has wrought. 
I haven't met anybody who thinks that their voice is meaningfully represented in the United States Senate instead of special interests of the most powerful people. Nobody. And it's because we can't have a debate on anything they care about. All of them have been blocked by Senator McConnell and his abuse of the Senate rules. Not some great, venerable tradition of the United States Senate, but his modern-day abuse, his caricature of the Senate rules. But back to the argument by that Mitch. The reason national voter protection legislation is so critical is unfolding in front of our very eyes in Texas, as we told you last night, where the Republicans' punitive law is already suppressing voters. New requirements for voter ID are leading some counties to reject as many as 40 percent of mail-in ballots requested because that new law required new forms with a blink or you'll miss it area to provide your driver's license number, state ID or social security number. Now, not everyone got the new form, of course, and applications on the wrong form are not acceptable for mail-in ballot requests. So they got tossed. And the law also conveniently makes it a felony for election officials to proactively send out the correct application forms to voters. See how that works? The identification used also has to match the ID number that was used when the person registered to vote in the first place, even if that was years and years ago. And that, that is why voting rights groups object to voter ID laws. It's not the idea of showing ID. It's the way Republicans use it to play keep away with voters that they don't like. With me now, Yamish Alcindor, anchor and moderator of Washington Week on PBS, who will soon be joining NBC News. We're very excited about it. NBC News presidential historian Michael Beschloss, host of Fireside History on Peacock. Christina Greer, associate professor of political science at Fordham University. And Adam Gentleson, executive director of Battleborn Collective and former deputy chief of staff to the great Senate majority leader, Harry Reid. This is a boss panel. I'm so excited to talk to you all. I'm going to start with my soon-to-be-new colleague, Gamish Alcindor, Talk about this press conference, because this was this was a marathon. It was two hours of Biden um, speaking. Uh, he was literally speaking at the same time Joe Manchin was being like, don't bother. What did the White House, um, from your reporting, what were they trying to get out of this day other than just commemorating the one year? And, and is there a real belief inside the White House that, as Biden said, they're not going to take no for an answer? They think they can somehow still win on voting rights. Well, one, I'm super excited to also be joining the NBC family. Cannot wait. Um, this, of course, her her White House history um, was the longest presidential news conference in history. It wasn't just long. It was historically, epically long. Um, and what the president really set out to do was, one, push back on his critics, um, talk about sort of what he wanted to do in this next year, talk about the mistakes that he perceived he made. But also, I think in some ways, he was out there to prove something. Um, think about the questions that he got from the conservatives about whether or not he's mentally fit, whether or not he's someone who can kind of stand up for the job. We all watched him for an hour and 50 odd minute. Um, stand up there, get frustrated at, at times, really get genuinely sad about the pandemic, but not really lose his stride, not insult people, not lash out, as we've seen mm -hmm. in the with the former president. Um, I think the other thing that, that sticks with me is the fact that he in some ways felt like a, a, an American who was trying to connect with other Americans who are frankly exhausted, who are frankly living through a pandemic and are feeling very gloomy. Um, I think that that was part of the emotional connection. It was interesting to hear him talk about voting rights in particular, as you were talking about this for this block, talking about the idea that maybe some parts of those bills can be passed, but also admitting that he feels like he should have been more out in the community with African-Americans, that he should have been talking about it more, that he should have been sincerely connecting with people 
he also was pretty clear that he is frustrated not just with the GOP, but also with members of his own party, talking about the fact that his agenda is stalled by people who are in his party. And I think the thing that also sticks with me is the fact that he was someone who was really setting out, I think, to, to really uh, talk about sort of where he wants to go next and talking about the fact that the reality is that Democrats are going to have to make some hard decisions, including breaking up bills, including figuring out how to deal with the GOP that is focused on um, obstructing him. One, I think, thing that to me struck me as confusing was that he was surprised that the GOP would obstruct him. I think yes. he was obviously the yes. VP for President Obama. It, very clear the GOP wanted to stop everything that Obama was doing. They're doing the same thing to President Biden um, and very successfully. So at that point, I should mention so I think that's also something that sticks with me that was confusing a bit because obviously he should have in some ways, I think, understood based on my conversation with Democrats that the GOP will uniformly try to block Democratic presidents. Uh, yeah, that, that that struck me, too. I have to be honest. That struck me, too. And every time he says it and Michael Bestos, I want to go to you to sort of give us a big picture, because I mean, the first time I ever got the chance to talk to Joe Biden before he was president, I said to him, what makes you think they're going to treat you any different than President Obama? And he got kind of irritated. He was like, I am not naive <laughs> about this. But I, I sometimes wonder if he was a bit naive. G give him a grade a little bit, because this is a president who is a man of the Senate and who seemed when I if, you know, that, this is the first time I had ever met the man. And he seemed genuinely to believe that there was something about him and his pre-existing relationships uh, on the Hill that could make it different for him than it was for President Obama. I never thought that. You know, was that just a, a mistake to think that he could do it? Was it noble for him to try? What, what do you make of one year in Biden? Well, you know, Joy, I would never want a president who did not at least try to work with the other side on Capitol Hill. But I also wouldn't want a president who saw that nothing was happening and kept on trying to do it, which he now sees from hard experience that that's not going to happen. And the other thing is we can all complain about various aspects of Joe Biden's first year. And maybe, you know, that uh, Yamish is absolutely right. This was the longest press conference. Yamish can correct me. I think the second longest was uh, 1997, Bill Clinton, 94 minutes. And Paul Begala said just a few minutes ago that he was at, he was Clinton's aide at the time and got a message from Rahm Emanuel, who was also in the White House staff, who said, stop it, knock off this press conference, tell the president he has to come back and feed his dog, which I think is what they did. But the point is that what's the most important thing about Joe Biden's first year? Well, as we all know, a year, a year ago tonight, Donald Trump was still president. He was breaking mm -hmm. the rule of law. He was threatening democracy. It was 13 days after an insurrection that almost brought down the United States government. Who could have done a better job during this last year than Joe Biden in restoring democratic traditions and restoring the rule of law? Anything else we might complain about, which is part of our duty as citizens, we have to begin with that. And that, I think, is the most important. Yeah, I think that is unquestionably true. Let, let's, let me go to you on this, Christina, because, you know, one of the, the big reasons that Joe Biden even has the opportunity to be here, and it's not Donald Trump, is that, you know, African-American voters were very proactive about saying, no, we need to replace Trump and, and, and picked him in a lot of ways, just, you know, sort of blessed him to become president. This is Kirsten Welker. I thought I asked a really good question about whether or not he has lived up to the promise he made to always have the back of black voters, particularly on something like voting rights. Take a listen. What do you say to these black voters who say that you do not have their backs as you promised on the campaign trail? I've had their back. I've had their back my entire career. I've never not had their back. And I started on the voting rights issues long, long ago. That's what got me involved in politics in the first place. I have not been 
out in the community nearly enough. What, what grade would you give him on this effort, Christina, including the timing of when the fight, the real fight was it was was engaged on voting rights? Right. If, if we're not using great inflation, I would say a C, maybe a C plus. Um, and, you know, as Jimmy mentioned, the, the president really needs to go public. This today was a real valiant effort of communicating, not just with journalists, but the American public. But he does need to go out into the community so much. This is so frustrating because it reminds me of the Obama era where the administration is doing actually quite a bit, uh, but they're not articulating not only their actions, but also the vision. So people are wondering what actually is going on in Washington, D.C., when we see uh, Joe Biden constantly meet an obstructionist Republican Party, constantly trying to negotiate with an obstructionist Republican Party and possibly forgetting the people who sent them there. And keep in mind, Joy, black voters, as you and I both know, are some of the most savvy and strategic voters because we not only vote for how we feel and what we think is best, but we also have to keep in mind the capacity of white voters to actually re-deliver a Donald Trump. And so Joe Biden wasn't necessarily every black voter's first choice, but he was the most practical choice to actually win against Donald Trump. And so if we understand that context, uh, Joe Biden still has a lot of work to do to win over black voters. And he has to do what we call in political science literature, which is go public, not just with his ideas and his policies, but he actually as is going to, even in the midst of a global pandemic, uh, get out into communities and use his surrogates, local and state leaders to really help push forward uh, his policy vision and really help voters understand that he's actually working on their behalf. Right. And, and I mean, even to stay, you know, for his part to stay in power, Adam Gentleson, um, you worked for the great Harry Reid, who, uh, you know, is probably the best strategist we've had in a very long time in the United States Senate and who did what he had to do to make sure that President Obama could be successful, the Obama-Biden administration. Let me play you because I, I find I find Mitch McConnell to be a singularly in negatively interesting figure in that I have no doubt that he would junk the filibuster tomorrow if he became Senate majority leader to get the things he wanted. Um, and yet he and his party are saying, you better not do it or we're going to get you. Here's uh, actually John Cornyn of Texas, who didn't even talk about his own state's crazy voting laws. But here is what he said, essentially threatening Democrats if they change the filibuster for voting rights. Take a listen. We can implement a 20 week ban on abortions and ensure that any baby that survives an abortion receives life-saving care. We could protect our constituents' Second Amendment rights and establish concealed carry reciprocity throughout the nation. In short, future, a future Republican-controlled Senate would be able to accomplish a lot, all thanks to a precedent that our Democratic colleagues seek to establish today. You, you've tweeted a lot about this, Adam. You know, this idea of trying to threaten and terrify Democrats into not changing the rules. Do you have any doubt that Mitch McConnell, if he becomes majority leader again, will just junk the filibuster in five days and Manchin will sit back and go, hmm? No doubt whatsoever in my mind, Joy. And uh, there's, there's a few reasons behind that. Uh, one is that I'm old enough to remember uh, 2017 when Mitch McConnell, without any hesitation, got rid of the filibuster in order to confirm a Supreme Court nominee. Uh, completely breezed past all the accusations of hypocrisy that were thrown his way, just as he will do in the future, got rid of it with the flick of a wrist. I'm also old enough to remember 2005, when under President George W. Bush, Mitch McConnell was the second ranking leader in the Republican Senate, and he led the fight to try to go nuclear under George W. Bush. Very aggressively, very eagerly, he had former aides write law review articles explaining why it was completely consistent with the Constitution to get rid of the filibuster. 
Uh, Chuck Grassley was still around back then. He supported that effort. So there's no doubt in my mind that the first time it becomes convenient for Republicans, the first time they control a trifecta, unified control of Washington, uh, the three elected branches of government, the first time it becomes convenient for them to get rid of the filibuster, they will get rid of it without a moment's hesitation. This should not be something, you know, Democrats, when they're thinking through their strategic choices, should not uh, invest in believing in forbearance from Mitch McConnell. If you are counting on forbearance yeah. from Mitch McConnell yeah. and Republicans in the future, you are, that is a bad strategic choice. Uh, amen. I, I, and so the, the reporting here from NBC News is that after Joe Manchin gave his speech embracing the filibuster, Senator Jeff Merkley um, made a last-ditch effort to try to explain to him the precedence of what they were going to try to do. Uh, I doubt that any of that helped at all. And he will literally sit there and be like, eh, you know, when, when McConnell does it, because he doesn't have a problem with that, because uh, McConnell likes the things he likes. Uh, anyway, Christina Greer, I know you got to go. Thank you very much, my sister. Appreciate you. Yamish, Michael, and Adam are sticking around for more on President Biden's epic press conference. And later, the Supreme Court delivered a major defeat to the disgraced twice impeached former president and Florida retiree late today, rejecting his efforts to block the January 6th committee from getting his White House documents off. Plus, the gathering storm. The Secretary of State is in Ukraine trying to defuse a brewing, a brewing international crisis. Senator Chris Murphy, just back from the region, joins me tonight. And tonight's absolute worst is like a weather forecast. Cold, a lot of wind, and a 100% chance of snowflakes. The readout continues after this. Here's a question. Have you ever been prescribed a medication? Most likely, yes. Well, what about this question? Did you understand how it worked? The way your medication works in your body shouldn't be a mystery. Learn how Vivgart, Fgartigamod Alpha FCAB works by visiting vivgart.com slash MOA. That's V-Y-V-G-A-R-T dot com slash MOA. Brought to you by Argenics. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future. That's PlannedParenthood.org slash future. Trusted people wanted to believe in the press. One day before he commemorates his first year as president, Joe Biden held a press conference, only his second solo news conference since he took office. While he stressed that he had gotten a lot done as president, including the infrastructure bill and coronavirus relief, he seemed genuinely surprised that Republicans didn't want to work with him to further his agenda. I did not anticipate that there'd be such a stalwart effort to make sure that the most important thing was that President Biden didn't get anything done. Think about this. What are Republicans for? What are they for? Name me one thing they're for. Biden also said that he was caught off guard by the Republicans' obstructionism, even saying that he remembers Republicans acting differently under President Obama. 
You said you were surprised by Republican obstruction of your agenda, but didn't the GOP take exactly the same tactic when you were vice president to Barack Obama? So why did you think they would treat you any differently than they treated him? First of all, they weren't nearly as obstructionist as they are now, number one. They stated that, but you had a number of Republicans we work with closely. That is despite the fact that the Republican Party's main goal at the time was to make sure that the Obama-Biden administration had no second term. And when President Obama did, that he would fail in every conceivable way. Back with me, Yemi Jalcindor, Michael Beschloss, and Adam Gentleson. And Adam, I-, I found that really shocking. I think we talked about it in the last block. But, you know, they don't have an agenda other than making Democrats fail. Here's Mitch McConnell basically unable to say really what their agenda would be if he got back the gavel. If Republicans take back control of Congress after the midterms, what would be your agenda? That is a very good question. And I'll let you know when we take it back. He has no idea. I mean, Chris Sununu, who was quoted, Adam, by the president today in his press conference, he said the following, and he was literally going to deliver like the person they wanted. He would have been a recruiting coup for the Republicans. And then he talked it over with Republican senators. He said they were all, for the most part, content with the speed at which they weren't doing anything. It was very clear that we just have to hold the line for two years. Okay, so I'm just going to be a roadblock for two years? That's not what I do. That's what he said. And Biden cited that. The Republicans don't have an agenda other than stop Democrats from doing anything and get judges, right? That's what your experience has been, I'm sure, as a aide to Terry Reid. Absolutely. I mean, that... You know, and, and this is the nature of our polarized environment right now. And this is, you know, not to, to bring it back to the filibuster, but this is what the filibuster allows them to do is to block anything that the majority wants to accomplish. It was never supposed to be this way, but that's the Senate we have right now. Um, you know, I think that is what Republicans can be counted on to do for the remainder of President Biden's uh, term. And, you know, the flip side of this, though, is that if Donald Trump were ever to come back to power or Republican president would come back to power, uh, they would accomplish a lot. I mean, they would they, they can't articulate an agenda because they don't want to say what it would be because the things that they would seek to do are deeply unpopular. Uh, you know, what Republicans want to do is they want to give more tax cuts to the wealthy. They want to confirm super conservative judges. They want to end a woman's right to choose. Uh, they want to uh, enact massive voter suppression laws and, you know, codify Trump's big lie. But they can't say that out loud. So, you know, the only thing they can say, the only thing they can do in public is to obstruct and hope voters don't notice the things that they actually do want to accomplish. Yeah, I mean, John Cornyn, actually, he did say it out loud. Like, he literally said it today. He's like, this is what we're going to do. I'm just letting you know if we get back in. You know, and, and the thing is, the, the purpose of that, Michael, what's, what's changed about the presidency is that most of the time, at least in the past, people would give the president a break. Like for a year, right. these presidents would have really high approval ratings. I mean, you can go through and put them up. After a year, John F. Kennedy's in the high 70s, Eisenhower, 69, right. you know, even though they were trying to say that he was fluoridating the water and that the Birch Society was trying to take him down. Even Carter at 62, Nixon 61. You can go all the way through, even President Obama, Reagan. The, 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 it seems that the purpose of Republicans now is to ensure that no president has the respect of the of half the public. And that is pretty much their agenda, to make sure the president is a failure so they can get back in power. That's what modern history suggests, Joy. You're absolutely right. And, you know, when the largely, not entirely, but the largely great Bob Dole died pretty recently, you know, everyone was saying this is someone who worked across the aisle and made deals. 
I remember Bob Dole on the night that Bill Clinton was elected in 1992, and he went on NBC and other networks, other lesser networks, and said, I now represent the majority of Americans who did not vote for Bill Clinton, and we're going to stop him. And that has been the attitude of Republican leaders in Congress ever since, especially Newt Gingrich, when he became speaker two years later. And it is un-American because James Madison, the idea was, unlike the British monarchy, he wanted presidents in Congress and parties in Congress to duke it out, just battle all the time, because he thought that that would lead to the best laws. But the other part of the deal was that they would also compromise and negotiate. So Republicans have learned the fighting part of it perfectly well, keeping a president of the other party in check. But where's the compromise? Where is the negotiation? Uh, it's radical and it's not American to avoid that. Indeed. And, and the other Biden spoke. I want to play one more piece of, of Joe Biden today because he spoke to the other piece that is not usual. There, you know, what I underst- always understood about politics, Yamish, is that there was a jealous guarding of power between the branches of government. And so that the congressional, the legislative branch would jealously guard its power against the president and those two branches would compete. But now what you've seen is among congressional Republicans, Senate and House Republicans, they subordinate themselves to this sort of king-like president, this sort of monarchical attitude toward them. Here's Biden talking about that, because now it's not a monarchical attitude. It's like a cult. Here's uh, President Biden talking about that, about Trump. Did you ever think that one man out of office could intimidate an entire party where they're unwilling to take any vote contrary to what he thinks should be taken for fear of being defeated in a primary. we got to break that. It's got to change. I mean, that wasn't true with Nixon, but it was sure kind of true with Reagan. It's gotten worse and worse and worse, the worship. Are there Republicans who are weary of it on Capitol Hill, or is everyone in on it and everyone who's not in on it is retiring? Uh, Joy, it's definitely the latter. And I think, you know, the president, President Biden just laid out sort of, would you ever think that a president could do this? A former president could hold a grip on a party like this? You should probably add to that. Would you ever think a president could almost overthrow the American democracy, lead people and encourage people to break into Congress in a violent and deadly insurrection and then still have that kind of power? That's the sort of second part of that question. And Joe Biden there is expressing essentially um, his, his his surprise again at the idea that, pre- that former President Trump is continuing to have this power. But I also, in th- some ways, I think this is a window into who President Biden is at his core. He ran as someone who had these relationships in the Senate, as someone who had three decades of, of power and was vice president. He thought things could be different. He was an optimist in this situation, and he's clearly had to deal with the realism of the Republican Party being completely in the hands of, of, of former President Trump. And the question I would completely want to still ask Joe Biden today is, how, what is the Democratic strategy against that? Republicans are being very, very successful in running on lies. They're very successful in passing laws that are going to make it harder for people to vote, including specifically black people, black women. What is the strategy to push back on that? Um, Democrats have not gotten that together. And the president simply, I don't think, has really articulated what, what, what he plans to do on that. And that's a big challenge for this White House going forward. Yeah, John Dean has called it authoritarian followers. And it is a, it is a, it is a, it's a thing about Republicans in the modern era. It is not true about Democrats. Democrats like their presidents. They don't worship them. It, that's the difference. They're willing to even like buck them. Look what they're doing inside 
uh, of the party to Joe Biden. It's a, it's a weird sort of authoritarian sort of worship on the Republican side. It is weird and it is not good for democracy. Michelle Sindor, Michael Beschloss, Adam Gentleson, thank you all very much. And still ahead, breaking news this evening, the Supreme Court delivered a major blow to Trump in the January 6th investigation. We'll give you the details next. Don't move. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated. All right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Just moments ago, the U.S. Supreme Court paved the way for the National Archives to turn over Donald Trump's White House records to the Select Committee investigating January 6th. The eight to one decision represents a major victory for the committee and a huge setback for Trump, who tried to block the records from reaching the committee. The only justice you take his side was Clarence, Clarence Thomas. Meanwhile, New York Attorney General Letitia James has gone public with damning new details from her civil probe into Donald Trump's business. She said, quote, we have uncovered significant evidence that suggests Trump and the Trump organization falsely and fraudulently valued multiple assets and misrepresented those values to financial institutions for economic benefit. Hmm. I should note that while James can only bring a civil action, her probe overlaps with a concurrent criminal investigation by Manhattan's new district attorney, Alvin Bragg. In a statement today, the Trump family called James's allegations baseless, but at the same time, they're opposing her subpoenas on the ground that their testimony could be used against them in the criminal probe. Hmm. All of that said, Attorney General James still says they have not yet reached a final decision regarding whether they've evident the evidence that they've collected merits legal action. Join me now, Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney. And I first want to ask you, uh, Joyce, about the Supreme Court ruling. What do you make of it? It's eight to one in favor of the committee. It's a clear victory for the committee, saying that the committee is entitled to get Trump's materials. What's interesting, though, about it, Joy, is the reason for that ruling. And what the the Supreme Court did is they essentially have held that even if Trump was still the president, the committee would have been entitled to these materials. They explicitly say they're not ruling on the question of when a former president can prevent a current president from releasing his materials. They leave that question for another day. Interesting. Okay, so we were going to put a pin in that for a moment because to stay with the committee for just a moment. So two new subpoenas today, Nick Fuentes, the white nationalist, and Patrick Casey of this right-wing America First movement. They're both, they were both at the Capitol January 6th. On the, on the Fuentes letter, they point out that Fuentes urged his followers to, quote, storm every state capital until January 20, 2021, until Trump is inaugurated for four more years. They're also interested in a donation he reportedly received uh, on bit in Bitcoin worth more than 250000 thousand dollars and the FBI is probably scrutinizing uh, whether the money's linked to the Capitol attack. What's the significance of having one of the provocateurs uh, subpoenaed? 
Looks like this is about the gold team uh, for the January 6th committee, the, the team that's following the money in this investigation. And they're very interested with both of these witnesses with Bitcoin donations and significant amounts that they received. What they're trying to do is figure out, in essence, who was paying for the January 6th rally, because communications between those folks about this rally on the ellipse and seeing whether that spills over into the insurrection at the Capitol could be a very fruitful area of inquiry. Yeah. And let's talk about the We finally have now seen prosecutors asking a January 6th defendant about Trump himself for the first time. So evidence emerged in court papers that prosecutors actually have posed questions to at least one defendant um, that were focused on establishing an organized conspiracy involving Trump and his allies to disrupt the work of Congress. Is that significant or, in your mind, incidental? Well, I think that's always been the question here, right? How far does this go? Who does it reach? But what's important to understand about conspiracy is that proof of a conspiracy requires an, an explicit agreement. It doesn't have to be written. It can be a handshake. It can be an understanding, even a wink and a nod. But there has to be an agreement that a group of people will achieve an illegal uh, uh, objective, that they're all working together in that same direction. So it's not unusual to see investigators trying to figure out, once you know that there is a conspiracy, who was involved. Yeah. And let's go back to, to, to Letitia James um, investigation. I, I've always said, you know, that one of the biggest mistakes Donald Trump ever made, one of the best things and worst things he ever did for himself was run for president. Right. He ran for president. He wanted the prestige, but he exposed himself in a lot of ways to scrutiny of things no one ever questioned. This idea he was a billionaire. We now know that was a lie. This idea that he owned this huge empire full of buildings, a lie. We're finding out through these subpoenas um, that the properties that Donald Trump owned, that he said he owned, he only owned like 55% of the ones that he listed on the Trump Organization website. A lot of the other ones are actually just licensing and management deals where it says Trump on the building, but it doesn't actually own it. That exposure, it, 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 is that legal in a meaningful sense? Is it just humiliating and embarrassing? Or what do you make of what they're discovering? Or is the valuation of the properties he actually owned, could that lead to criminal charges? You know, I think it's all of the above, Joy. Um, and I think it's important that Tish James said that she hasn't made any predetermination about whether or not she's bringing charges. She clearly is still trying to get a sense of what Trump and his children knew, what they intended. You know, was it just an incredible coincidence that there were 10 major incidents of fraud on papers they submitted? Sometimes mistakes can happen. Or was there any sort of knowledge and intent at work here? Um, Trump, you know, who notoriously eludes uh, sort of the grip of the justice system is really in between the pincers of the civil and the criminal system here because yeah. there are significant remedies on the civil side of this investigation. We've seen, you know, the New York attorney general dismantle Trump's, Trump's charitable organization that's right. and prohibit it from further operations in New York. That's that's not an insignificant penalty. At the same time, these sorts of allegations of fraud, if evidence of, of intent and knowledge pans out, they could lead to criminal charges, but could is doing a lot of work in that sentence. Yeah, yeah. indeed. My favorite uh, sort of uh, factoid about this, Eric Trump taking like, like 500 times, taking the fifth, like like once an hour almost uh, in hundreds of hours, in hours and hours of uh, of questioning. Very interesting. Joyce Vance, thank you. Always appreciate you. Um, tonight's absolute worst is still ahead. But first, Secretary of State Blinken meets with the Ukrainian president as Russia continues its military buildup along Ukraine's border. Is there still a diplomatic path forward? Senator Chris Murphy is just back from the region and he joins me next. Don't go anywhere.
I think he still does not want any full-blown war, number one. Number two, do I think he'll test the West, test the United States and NATO as, as uh, significantly as he can? Yes, I think he will. But I think he'll pay a serious and dear price for it that he doesn't think now will cost him what it's going to cost him. That was President Biden weighing in on what he thinks Russian sociopath and autocrat Vladimir Putin will do with the roughly 100,000 troops amassed on the border with Ukraine. Others agree. The risk of a conflict is real. NATO allies call on Russia to de-escalate and any further aggression will come with a high cost for Moscow. Our view is this is an extremely dangerous situation. We're now at a stage where Russia could at any point launch an attack in Ukraine. We do have information that uh, indicates that Russia uh, is already working actively to create a pretext for a, pot for a potential invasion. Putin is also sending an unspecified number of troops to Belarus, which just so happens to share a border with Poland and Ukraine. This increased bravado comes as the United States and Russia engage in diplomatic talks with the goal of de-escalating the situation. Secretary of State Antony Blinken flew to Ukraine today at the behest of President Biden in a show of support for that country's president and warned Russia that it could face severe consequences if it took aggressive actions. Blinken and his Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, are set to have a third meeting on Friday in Geneva. Previous talks have failed to make much progress. Last week, 38 Senate Democrats unveiled a punishing new sanctions bill. As usual, it's unclear if Republicans will support it. Over the weekend, a bipartisan group of Senate, se Senate seven senators traveled to Ukraine to deliver a message of support. Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, who was part of that group, joins me now. And Senator Murphy, let, let's let's go over that because uh, you know the, what President Biden said to reporters today is that there, it's NATO is not all on the same page about what to do about this situation. Talk a little bit about those differences and kind of where the U.S. falls on what to do if Russia gets more aggressive. Well, first of all, I was really proud to join this bipartisan delegation, seven of us, um, Republicans and Democrats, to make clear to both Ukraine and Russia that there's no daylight between the two parties when it comes to backing up Ukraine and making sure that Russia pays a price if they do invade. Uh, but I think you're right to, um, you know, really see Biden's concern for NATO uh, remaining whole and unified because Putin's short-term goal may be to try to regain influence over Ukraine, but his long-term goal is to break up and smash NATO to pieces. And so uh, Biden has to do two things here. He needs to send a message to Putin that there's going to be huge consequences if he was to invade Ukraine, but do it in a way that keeps NATO together because Putin would love nothing more than for Ukraine to be NATO's undoing, because that ultimately is his goal in the end. It's a real um, sort of very fine line that he needs to walk here, but the president's doing a very good job, and I think he's going to deliver a message to Putin that will show him there are going to be serious consequences to both his army uh, and to his economy if he moves into Ukraine any further. And, of course, sanctions are the way that he would do that. So there's Democratic legislation. It's called the, De the Defending Ukraine Sovereignty Act. 
It's got sanctions, mandatory sanctions, you know, pretty significant sanctions. How long does that bipartisan group hold together if, for instance, the Senate changes hands? Because, you know, if Republicans then are in control of the Senate, they go back to doing the bidding of the president who really, really, really likes Russia and really, really, really doesn't like NATO. Are you confident that the bipartisan sort of coalition holds together if Mitch McConnell has the gavel? Well, Congress can give you know, any president sanctions authorization, but it's the president that actually has to implement them. Remember, back in the end of 2019, well before this Nord Stream 2 pipeline from Russia to uh, Europe was completed, Congress passed bipartisan sanctions authority, handed it to President Trump, and President Trump refused to use it. He, he imposed one sanction on his last day in office, but by that time, 95% of the Nord Stream pipeline was built. He handed Biden this enormous mess. So Congress has always been pretty unified on the matter of supporting Ukraine and punishing Russia for their incursions into Ukraine. The problem is Joe Biden will use the sanctions authority we give him. But if Donald Trump gets back into office, uh, he won't. Um, It's ultimately up to the president to make this policy work. And there's just a huge difference between Donald Trump's seriousness about Russia and Joe Biden's seriousness. How worried should we be that We're going to see war on the European continent uh, over this. I think we should be very worried. Uh, I do think that Vladimir Putin sees Ukraine slipping away from him. Ten years ago, you know, only 20, 30 percent of Ukrainians wanted to join NATO. Uh, He had a proxy government in place in Kyiv. But over the course of the last decade, Ukraine has made a different decision. They now want to be part of the West. They are sick and tired of living under Russia's thumb. And he can't now coerce them um, back into his uh, orbit. He has to use force. And so I think you need to look at this whole threat to Ukraine through a prism of Russian weakness. This is his only chance to try to win Ukraine back is with 200,000 troops. But I think there's a very good chance that those troops are going to march further into Ukraine, maybe not all the way to Kyiv, but I think we could be on the precipice of an international crisis. Yeah, lots of crises in hand. Um, let, let me switch uh, gears just more to voting rights. Uh, there's going to be a vote tonight. We're now thinking it's going to be sometime in the eight o'clock hour. How is that going to go? Um, is there any chance that Manchin and Cinema will allow even a switch to a talking filibuster or a filibuster with 55 votes needed instead of 60 or any changes at all? It doesn't appear that we're ultimately going to win the vote on changing the rules, but it is important that we are going to be united in our vote for the Freedom to Vote Act, uh, which in and of itself could save democracy. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't look like we'll be as united when it comes to the rules change. You know, my colleagues think that preserving Senate traditions uh, is right now more important than protecting the right to vote. I think that's an enormous mistake. I don't know that there's going to be a Senate left to protect if we lose our democracy. Donald Trump has told us loud and clear, transparently, openly, proudly, that he wants to steal the next election, that he thinks the vote counters are more important than the candidates. And so if in 2022 or 2024, somebody gets seated in the United States Senate, or God forbid the White House, who didn't actually win the election, that's a constitutional crisis. That could be the end of democracy. That could be the end of the United States Senate. And I wish all 50 of my colleagues understood the stakes like that. Why is it? Do you, why do you think that Manchin and Cinema don't uh, don't care about that? Very quickly, so we're, at, we're almost out of time. Yeah, you'd have to ask them. I, I mean, ultimately, yeah. I, I don't know that they see the existential threat that many of us do. Yeah, clearly, or they just don't care. <laughs> Senator Chris Murphy, that's me, not you. Uh, thank you very much, sir. Really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And up, cheers. And up next. Okay, are you comfy? 
Yeah. Because tonight's absolute worst is next, and I just want to make sure that you don't feel any discomfort. Because, you know, before we kick this off, I want to make sure that you're, you're chill. So I even brought this plushie for you. See the plushie? He's going to soothe you. He's soothing you. Okay, we'll be right back. Are you old enough to remember starting way back in 2016 when the right was obsessed with referring to those on the left as snowflakes? I am reveling in all of the tears that we're seeing from the buttercups and the snowflakes, <laughs> the snowflakes who were in full yeah. meltdown. We call people out on being snowflakes. Little snowflake liberals are preparing to protest. They obviously can't handle it. They are the snowflakes, Richard. We now have proof, Sean, snowflakes are everywhere. The uh, snowflakes believe things, their opinions are based on emotion rather than facts. Ah, yes. They were trying to create a narrative that Democrats are just too sensitive. It's kind of ironic, given that Trump thin-skinned went on an almost daily attack against any man, woman, or child who he perceived had slighted him in any way. But it turns out that it's, it's you folks on the right who need to check the weather forecast, at least in the state of Florida. Because Trump's mini-me, Governor Ron DeSantis, is pushing a bill prohibiting schools and businesses from making white people feel discomfort when teaching students or employees about historic racism. Yes, yes, you heard me correctly. Ron is worried that white people are, are too sensitive to learn that slavery actually happened and that for hundreds of years, black and brown people have been oppressed in this country. The bill reads in part, an individual by virtue of his race or sex does not bear responsibility for actions committed in the past by other members of the same race or sex. An individual should not be made to feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress on account of his or her race. I mean, I'm sorry if learning the facts of America's history causes you psychological distress, but how about the people who actually had to live through it? It is not surprising that this is coming from Chairman Ron, who is fighting an all-out war against the right's critical race theory boogeyman. Just the other week, he was trying to peddle this conspiracy theory about our public schools. It's not just about critical race theory. I mean, there's a lot of other inappropriate content that can be smuggled in uh, by, uh, by, by public schools. As I've said before, I'm not sure what old Ron thinks are being smuggled in. What, like copies of Toni Morrison books? And by the way, how would this even work in schools? Like, for instance, could you teach that slavery involved white slave owners and black slaves? What if that makes a white student feel uncomfortable? Like, what about business? Would you have to prohibit them from holding any kind of racial sensitivity training so they wouldn't get sued by an employee? Or what if like a small business wanted to have a Black Lives Matter sign? And, and that, like, caused some psychological distress to one of, like, the white employees. Would that, like, be illegal? Would, like, could somebody call the cops? Like, it is a problem for old Ron DeSantis. Because I, I think what he's saying is that he believes that the white citizens of Florida are too snowflakey, too sensitive, too scared, and not strong enough to handle actual facts about history. That they can't handle it at work, they can't handle it in school. If I were a white Floridian, I'd actually be offended. But that's just me. So Ron DeSantis, for being a big old snowflake and a big old baby and trying to legislate people's feelings because it's all feelings, not facts, you, sir, are the absolute worst. And also a snowflake. Here's a buddy to make you feel better. And that's tonight's readout.
Finding the music you love shouldn't be hard. That's why Pandora makes it easy to explore all your favorites and discover new artists and genres you'll love. Enjoy a personalized listening experience simply by selecting any song or album, and we'll make a station crafted just for you. Best of all, you can listen for free. Download Pandora on the Apple App Store or Google Play and start hearing the soundtrack to your life.